Hi, this is Dan Sullivan. I'd like to welcome you to the Multiplier Mindset Podcast. Today on Free Zone Success Stories, I have a great friend and a very, very accomplished entrepreneur, Nick Nanton. A lot of you might remember Nick because a couple of years ago I had a great documentary come out and Nick was the brains and the talent that put that together. So he'll talk a little bit about what he does in the area of documentaries for entrepreneurs. But Nick, it's very exciting, kind of the shifts that are going on right now. And I just wondered, what's it been like for you the last three months? It's been an amazingly clarifying period. I'll take a line when I was interviewing Tony Robbins not that long ago, and he said, human beings require progress. They require progress. And to put it in Dan Sullivan terms, it's they require a future that's bigger than their past. And so I saw many people who I felt sorry for who couldn't go to their job, so they just sat and watched Netflix for three months. They say during this period of time, you'll either become a hunk, a chunk, or a drunk. I chose to pick two. So during this time, I found that I couldn't do anything other than find a way to move forward. So most of my life revolves around for the last... 10 years, I've been directing and producing documentaries all across the globe. I've produced and directed 65 documentaries. The day the first three coronavirus cases broke out in Iraq, I was there and I had to leave because we had to get out. So I've had this rhythm of life. Seven nights a month is all I travel for my family's sake. So I travel like a night and a half a week, but I really had this rhythm going of, I travel these nights, I'm home these nights, I take the kids to school then, I go to the practice then, I work out then, I hang out with my wife then. I had the whole thing down. And all of a sudden it shut down and it took me a couple of days to realize why I was feeling so uneasy. And it was because the rhythm of life had changed and it wasn't due to anything that I had done. It wasn't a cause and effect that I had control over, which leads a lot of people, by the way, to the grieving process, which I think is okay. Things are different. You can grieve that, but then you move on. So I quickly said, what can I do to serve others around me and not drive everyone else around me crazy because I have nothing to do? So I said, well, let me start having some conversations about what's going on and invite other people in. So that's what I did. So I basically started up a live stream, a podcast, and I ended up creating an entire new business model out of it. But I used it to really clarify and have great conversations around what the future looks like, not only for me, but for other people. And I think I really realized a couple very clarifying things for me. And one of them being that, you know, the leader they're looking for is you. Your marketplace right now, there's a huge gap, especially in the scary times, as you call them, Dan. The marketplace is looking for someone to step in during scary mm -hmm. times and say, hey, I get that you're scared. And even to say, so am I, it's okay. Let's walk through this together and to lead. And there's never been a bigger opportunity in history, of certainly as long as I've been alive, mm -hmm. to step in and be that leader. Yeah. Let me ask you a question I've been asking a lot of our free zone people that, Nick, you're how old now? I've just turned 40. 40. I'm going to take you back to the six-year-old Nick, uh -huh. and we'll establish where that was in just a minute. But then I'd like to know, are you still pretty close to who you were when you were six years old? Yeah, I think more than ever. It's the biggest thing I notice about entrepreneurs is that they retain kind of a certain childhood enthusiasm and wonder about things. I bet you were a talker, weren't you? I definitely was. And I was always trying to figure out, like, why not? Like, yeah, I'm six. So what? I want a new, not a flat screen TV at the time, but whatever it was. Like, yeah. why can't I have that? Because it exists and you have it. Why can't I have it? Mm -hmm. 
So let's talk about another early time, and that's when you first really crossed the line into entrepreneurism. Again, I find there's a lot of very, very young experiences that actually prompt people to go into entrepreneurism. So can you talk about that? It was crucial that you be an entrepreneur. That's when I say you're an entrepreneur when there's no alternative except to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, and you helped me see a big distinction I hadn't necessarily seen before, that my parents immigrated with me and my brother, and a lot of our family immigrated together, and you helped me see that they were entrepreneurs just by the fact of immigrating and going through the hard work of getting out of Barbados and the Caribbean into America, right? Mm -hmm. So I had more love than I could spend, still do, see my parents multiple times a week to help out with the kids, they're great. But there were times when, you know, just leaving everything behind and coming to build anew, add into that savings and loans crises, not having a huge network here, all these things. My parents had ups and downs like any other parent. I mean, my dad, his first big business here that he got into is opening the Suzuki Jeep dealership with my uncles in Orlando. And it shot up like a rocket and then consumer reports came out and we went down like a rocket. And so I remember my parents, most of my formative life, like trying to hold on to keep the wheels on, give us, my brother and I, he's two years older than me, the encouragement we needed and to not help us feel afraid. But they also were very honest with us like, hey, I understand you really want a car and we think you deserve one, but you're going to have to go find out how to get there. So really, I think the first experience I really had as an entrepreneur. Well, I realized I was 12 years old and I was playing a lot of tennis. I did for years. And I realized that, wait a minute, I'm going to a guy who my parents pay a certain amount of money and he's got like 10 of me on the court at the same time. He's getting the same amount of money times 10. And we had a tennis court. My dad's dream, because he used to have to walk uphill both ways to get to a tennis court in St. Vincent, was to have a tennis court. So we had like a tennis court on our property. My parents built their dream home, 2,400 square feet. So they're very innocent, simple people, but they had a tennis court. And I realized I could charge the five-year-old kids in the neighborhood five bucks for a half hour tennis lesson, I get 10 of them, I can make 50 bucks an hour at 12 years old. So I started realizing that there were opportunities all around me if I was willing to look for them. And, and quite frankly, I think it's like most other people, if I was <laughs> motivated enough to find an answer. And for me, it was like right around that time, I started wanting the cool shoes, the cool clothes. You know, my parents actually, at one point, tennis was so expensive to play. I played at a top academy. We couldn't afford it. Thankfully, the owner was super nice, but we dug ditches, painted the place. Like I learned that hard work was something that's okay to do. And you're going to have to dig ditches to build foundations. But if you want to solve the problem enough, if you're motivated enough, there's opportunity all around you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then one of the things that you really spotted as an opportunity, I love entrepreneurs' histories. So I've got a thousand entrepreneurial histories in my head. One of them is, first of all, you really went into live music. I mean, you went into a band, but you also, very interesting in that your university, like you went into law, entertainment law. So can you talk about that period? Yeah. So my dad went to McGill in Canada. So great school. He came up for the islands, was admitted. He did well. He got accepted to his master's. He got married to my mom and then they decided that wasn't the path for them. And I think that's probably wise, but I know there were many points in his life, especially when things were struggling. He had a sentiment that I don't think is true, that if he would have had that MBA, that 
he wouldn't have had these struggles. So during that point in life, but it's a natural thought process. I get it. So when my brother and I were young, it was, Hey, you can do whatever you want to do in life. Just make sure you get a profession. You can do whatever you want in life. Just make sure you get a profession. And we're both like, heck no, we're not getting a profession. So I'm two years into undergrad. My brother's two years older. He goes to med school. So now I'm like stuck. So I'm like, all right, I'm about to finish undergrad. I have enough credits to graduate within two and a half years. Not really ready to be done with college yet. I'm managing bands, running an entertainment company. And actually my current business partner, Jack, who you know, we've been in business since 2000 together. He helped me fund an entertainment company. But I realized that a lot of the presence of major record labels and a lot of the career that I thought I wanted to go into in entertainment, I thought at the time that having it to fall back on as a safety net and also credibility tool would be good. I will say, I'm really glad I went to law school. I think I got way more out of it for different reasons than other people. I'm typically the only lawyer in the rooms I'm in. And I get, especially when I was younger, I was able to cross bridges I think people wouldn't have invited me into. As opposed to if I was a lawyer who went to work at a law firm, I would just be the youngest lawyer in the room. So as a differentiator, it's a really interesting tool. It taught me, again, also how to teach my clients how to utilize differentiation to grow their branding, their storytelling. And so, yeah, law school really for me was fulfilling a promise to my parents in a way or a desire they had for me and me wanting to honor that, but also thinking, man, if I could get this differentiation because I don't want to go be a lawyer, what could it do for me? I hated every second of it, don't get me wrong, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Can I ask you a question and maybe you can clarify it to me? I really, really notice that people who are immigrants, you know, when parents bring their children, they literally have to leave behind all the status they had, all the credibility they had. And it seems to me that, you know, lawyer, doctor is something they want for their children. Is that an attempt to establish new credibility? And they've just noticed that lawyers and doctors have credibility in society? Uh, that's fascinating. Maybe. That's a very good point. I also wonder, because I never really thought about it, I would bet most of the people who immigrate aren't doctors or lawyers, mm -hmm. or else it would be much likely much harder to leave an established career. And I think particularly back then, you know, I was born in 1980. You know, I think that those tried and true professions, and I would say non-offensively, I think in like, you know, where I'm from, most countries like that are maybe a decade behind or more in certain things. I think my parents, their desire in life was stability. Yeah. And so they thought that that is a path. If we steer you down that road, you will have stability. Whatever else you want to screw up for yourself is up to you, but you'll have the stability that I think they always craved. There's a story I tell, and it's about the first woman president of the United States and her parents were immigrants. The father's dead. So the mother is standing there you know, front of the Capitol while she's being sworn in. And just as she's taking the oath of office, the man next to her leans over and said, this must be the proudest moment of your life. And she turns to him. She says, well, you know, her brother's a doctor. <laughs> yes, I can see that. <laughs> I mean, president, I mean, is it a good living? You know, it's not good for the long run, you know. Stable, that's for sure. Yeah. So talk about the jump out into the marketplace and you met Jack. So was that an easy transition? Because even while you were at university, you were already busy. You were the classic C student. You were the classic C student. <laughs> yes, yes. I think you hired A students, but you know, you had to create a company while you were still at university. Yes, I definitely was a C student in law school. I did better than that in undergrad. So I started that business of teaching tennis in high school. I got hired actually at a place to sell embroidery work at the mall. And I realized I could just go sell it outside that. So I actually then went to 
cold calling car dealerships and was selling embroidered shirts to car dealerships because they had such high turnover as salespeople that I would get a lot of orders. Then when I went to university, I looked at, I've always made money run business. So I ran a recording studio that I had in my sort of my house and I was doing screen printing and embroidery. And I figured out, well, the sororities and fraternities, they ordered t-shirts for like every date function every weekend. So I became the top provider of t-shirts to the, the Greek community while my mom then was running the embroidery stuff back in Orlando where I was from doing all the car dealership stuff. So I was running a business all throughout. And to me, college really just sort of did get in the way, but I felt like it was necessary. For me, it was sort of like having that much going on made me focus in small pockets. I mean, I know you have ADHD too. I'm most productive when I'm super busy because I hyper-focus in small increments on little things and I get them all done. If you give me a day to get something done, you're probably going to get a lesser result. And if you give me 30 minutes to get something done, it's just the way I work. So through college, then in law school, I actually had to petition to be able to still have my business because you're not allowed to work the first year of law school. And I'm like, I can't just shut it down. So they let me do that. And I just had always had my own businesses. So no, I actually, for a period of time, when I moved, I took a huge job with a major movie theater company, my last year of law school, moved to Orlando, visited at a private university, which was 10x the price of the public university I was going to, but I could still graduate from my main university because it's a better university. And they were going to let me sign acts. They're going to let me create music videos for them. They're going to let me put them in the previews of the movie theater. And then they're going to let me sell merchandise at the popcorn stand. And more than that, they have movie theaters that no one is in 90% of the time. They're going to let me tour bands around in the theaters, which were already set up for sound. So I moved over. My wife and I bought a house in Orlando. I got one year of law school left. I show up the first day of the job and they tell me that they've sold all the preview time they forgot to a major agency and we ain't buying it back. So then all all of a sudden, I have now don't know what I'm going to do. So I took a three-year period uh, as longer than I wanted and went and worked with Jack at his other company, but I kept running my businesses of entertainment on the side. And that was actually the weirdest time of my life of three years of working for someone else. I worked for a little bit for someone else in high school and realized how I could make my own business and went out and did it. But three years of working for someone else, I craved freedom more than anything else. And when you talk about the four freedoms, I mean, that reigned supreme in my life. Like I would go to lunch at the mall that was across from the office and I would be pissed off that like, I wonder how these people can just mill around the mall at 1.30 in the afternoon. Like no one's making them go back to an office. Like it would frustrate me to no end. And I knew that I could probably do my most productive work in a couple hours a day, but I had to be there from nine to six and take an hour for lunch. And I did law school at night that year. And I just really realized that I'm fundamentally unemployable. So at one point I had a conversation with Jack. I was just bitching and moaning to him about how I couldn't work under these circumstances. It's just not working. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but here's the short version. He essentially fired me. And then within like 30 seconds asked if I want to start another business together. So we started a law firm, which became our current branding agency that we represent, you know, entrepreneurs in 63 countries, helping them to tell their story through media. So it worked out, but that was sort of how I got into that role. Nick, you've kind of taken what is a show business medium, which is documentaries, but documentaries about famous people. And you've kind of found a overlooked realm of society, which is just entrepreneurs who may not be well known, but they're very successful. They create value in entirely new ways. They're heroes to a lot of people. Where did the idea germinate and where did that idea grow in your mind to actually focus on the entrepreneurial market with documentaries? 
So as we're building our branding agency, which I tell people branding is simply storytelling and your brand is your story. It's the one thing no one else can copy. And a great brand is just a story your clients want to tell for you so you get more business. So to break it down there, that's where I start. As I was doing that for clients in the marketplace, I'd always been fascinated with the medium of video. I'm a very visual person. And I also was fascinated by when you create something like that, you're expected essentially to build a team to do it. You can't do everything at the same time. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder if all the skill sets that I've gained over time would be valuable there. I went and made a short film about a little boy with Down syndrome who played T-ball. I had some clients help me fund it. I made it as my first production. We got two Emmy nominations. I won an Emmy and I figured I should do some more of it. And Jack's like, hey, you know what you should do is you should tell some of our client stories. And so I started doing some of that. And over time, I did a lot of that. But then I started realizing that what I really value in the marketplace is relationships because that drives everything for me. Much like yourself, we have very similar Colby's. Yours is nearly perfect. You're a one-off for me. So when I speak, I wrote it down. I have it right here, right in front of me. I love your philosophy and the way you distill an entrepreneur is someone who doesn't expect any opportunity until they first create value. And I'd always run my life that way. Like, hey, let me just do it and see if I can get a response. So I started going to people, including Peter Diamandis, our mutual friend, and saying, hey, I've won a few Emmys at that point. I'd love to tell your story. And they typically, the higher up the food chain you go in the celebrity world, whether they're entrepreneurs or not. And by the way, as you and I've had some other conversations about other celebrities that were not entrepreneurs, that's sort of my qualifier now. I do a lot of work for nonprofits, but I only do work for nonprofits that are run by entrepreneurs. And most of them left their day job to go make the world a better place. They're just using the nonprofit as a vehicle, but they're entrepreneurs. They left their pensions, they left their government jobs, they left all that. Mm -hmm. You got to be an entrepreneur. And so when I did Peter's, typically like everyone else, he's like, oh, there's already someone doing it, blah, 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 or wants to do it. And I just do what I always did. I just wait long enough till that person disappears because you can count on that nine out of 10 times. And then as I started telling more conspicuous entrepreneur stories, it became very evident that that was a roadmap. And it led me to even, I think, a more crystallizing thing that I put all together during this quarantine period. I also remember the first time you saw Peter's documentary at Abundance 360, you came up to me and said, Nick, there's going to be two periods of your life. I said, what's that? Then you said, before Peter's documentary and after Peter's documentary. And you're absolutely right. But I think what I really realized is I love the value entrepreneurs create in the world. And there are so many lessons to be learned because of how much value they've created in the world. But most people don't, outside of a small community of entrepreneurs, most people don't seek out stories of entrepreneurs. They will look at biographies of presidents. And by the way, there's a lot of entrepreneurial vision and version in those. But if you cut straight to the entrepreneurs, you can start talking about value creation today. And what I realized during this time is my role, like my calling in this, using my unique ability really is going to be to turn any message I feel is important into entertainment. Mm -hmm. The moment I can do that, I can actually do the things I feel I'm called to, which is to lead, educate, and inspire the world through media. You know, so many people like yourself have amazing stories that would inspire millions of people. But if I don't do my job and turn it into entertainment, I'm automatically limiting it to being heard by at best probably thousands of people. So that's sort of where I've gotten to is if I can just take all the value entrepreneurs create and turn it into entertainment that the world loves to consume, I think we can create a lot more value creators in the world. Yeah, it was really interesting because, you know, I was born on a farm, grew up on a farm in northern Ohio, and about a year ago, my oldest sister, who, you know, I'm nine years younger than she is, she did a stopover in Toronto and she came to the office. I was in Chicago, but I talked to her on Zoom, but they showed her the video. They hadn't seen the documentary. My team, the Wallers, you know, the three Wallers 
showed my sister and my oldest niece, so it's her oldest daughter, and the whole depiction of the farm, my sister said, I never knew that the farm experience meant that much to Dan. My experience of the farm was very happy when the farm failed. I would say a year and a half after the scene that's in the movie, the farm failed. And my older siblings, I have four older siblings, you know, it's not a happy experience in their life. But for me, it was, you know, very, very happy. And she was very struck by, you know, the story that I told about, you know, seeing the airplane in the sky and kind of having a question come to me that, you know, I've really created my life out of. But you have a knack for catching that type of moment. You know, I've seen Joe. Joe's is, you know, just an amazing, amazing, the one you did on Joe. I mean, the Peter was a knockout, but a lot of stuff that Peter does, you know, is newsreel stuff. But the thing with Joe and just how Joe has turned his life around and you caught the transformation of Joe Polish's life. It was just really extraordinary how you caught that. There's almost a music to great videos. You know, they have a melody line and they have a change of chords and everything else. And you have a real gift for that. Can you talk a little bit how the two in your mind go together? Because you're also a songwriter. Yeah. And just for our viewers that Nick every month goes to Nashville, maybe not in the last couple of months, but he goes to Nashville and is with a team and they produce a song a day while you're there. An idea in the morning and a finished song, uh, at least for listening in the evening. Yeah, we do two a day now. And actually with Zoom, it's even better because I couldn't get people to write with me on Zoom before because it's not the same. Now they had to anyway, so it didn't matter if I was in Orlando or Nashville. So yeah, the two, they're both different types of storytelling, but they do fit together I would say the thing about your film and Joe's film and, you know, I'm doing the one with Charlie Epstein now and there's just a Peters. I won't do a film on someone who I don't love. I mean, I genuinely like, if it's not a story I'm interested in telling, the money be damned. I insert a lot of give a damn into a film and I give people a lot of room to be themselves because they believe and they know that I'm not there to do anything other than to help share who they are at the core. And it's funny how few people approach interviews that way. Even like on podcasts, if you can make your guests feel safe, you'll get the best stories ever. I mean, in my film, I did Larry King. Larry King's like, hey, I've never said this on camera before. I'd had breakfast with Larry King one time before that for like an hour and he had gotten into a car accident before this interview is my second time meeting him and we're interviewing him and it's just but I made a safe space for him and he believed that I was going to share his story so I think at the end of the day if I'm comparing those two mediums they manifest differently in ways one is super auditory and one is super visual, but it's all about painting pictures. Mm -hmm. and so in the auditory one, you use words and sort of, it's funny, the handicap you have, you really get two new verses and the same chorus and maybe a bridge if you want to write one and you can add something. But it's really 14 lines tops to paint a moment or a lifetime in that. I would say by the same token, the films allow me to paint a picture. It's a much more drastic picture. I guess it's equally emotional, I think, and they're just different mediums, but it allows me to paint a picture. And all I'm really setting out to do is paint an honest picture of the heart of what I see. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to sound too ethereal with any of that, but that's really what I'm aiming to do. And the best part about it is my unique ability. And again, Dan, I base some of this off of, well, unique ability sessions with your team, but also your unique ability because we do have a lot of similar Colby's and other things like that. And what I looked at is my unique ability is having impactful conversations that lead to produced outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so 
the best part about what I do with film and even music is I do what I'm best at. I have conversations and we spark idea. And with film, I record them. And then I never have to have that conversation ever again. And I turn it over to someone who is far better at me. Their unique ability and the unique ability of teamwork is doing all the other stuff. And even before I do my interviews, I have someone whose unique ability is doing a ton of research. I just interviewed our mutual friend, Chris Voss, earlier. I got a write-up here. My writer wrote me a story. I, what I have her do is to say, hey, listen to the podcast, watch the video, spend all the time you need, and write me an article that's the equivalent of them getting a cover story, Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur. And then I read that the night before, and I read it 10 minutes before the interview, and I make a bunch of notes on it. And I'm now in the presence of mind to utilize my unique ability, which is to have an impactful conversation, but I don't have to do the crap I used to never do. And so I am prepared now. I prepare by not preparing by having someone else do it. You can't skip steps in life, but you don't have to do them all yourself. So that unique ability of teamwork allows me to not only be prepared, I'm now much more willing to go down rabbit holes in an interview, which mm -hmm. when someone's eyes light up and you follow them, you're typically going to be taken on a journey that maybe haven't taken, especially on camera before. And I'm never reluctant to do it anymore because I always have a home base to go back to. If we end up down a rabbit hole, I don't ever have to go, well, where do I go now? Mm -hmm. Let's pop right back to where we were. So, and then the same thing, the unique ability teamwork. I am a musician, I've been playing guitar my whole life, but man, there's way better musicians than me in Nashville. They speak, eat and breathe music. So we collaborate together and then they produce the finished product. But then like me, most of the musicians in Nashville, the songwriters, they go back and write two more songs the next day, turn them in, we call them to Song Mountain, which they're probably never going to be seen or heard ever again. I now have gone out and proven the model that if I put one of my songs in one of my movies, a famous person will sing it. And we have a big launch coming up with a bunch of famous people because of that. And so I'm now figured out an entrepreneurial model for getting songs cut that all the guys who before would never have taken a look at me because I was just a guy who came to Nashville, you know, once a month to write songs. They're like, hey, we should write with that guy, Nick. He gets songs cut. And it's just very interesting how looking at everything from the value creation model works in every business. Nick, I'm going to tell the viewers something right now, and it's better for me to say it than for you to say it, and that is that you've won 15 Emmy Awards with your documentaries so far. Let's talk about the first time you won and then the 15th time you won, the difference between the first and the 15th. Really a conversation of the four Cs. And so, you know, once you have the capacity now I mean, it's always great, but the 15th one did nothing more than honestly probably the second one in that one is a fluke. Two, okay, you know how to do this, but by the time you go on beyond that, but I really aim for a standard of work that will get me recognized. It's not for the recognition, it's to make sure I'm testing myself against a standard of work that is at the highest quality in the world. I'm really honored that like, I won an Emmy for directing the movie about you, like most people would have thought that a documentary about an entrepreneurial coach who teaches strategy for business owners across the globe would never get a look. But we told it in a way that gets the attention of it. So I think the first one was like a magical moment and realizing, okay, wait, there is a way to do this. And I think for me, I'd been fighting music for so long and still hadn't figured it out that I just thought maybe it wasn't figure outable. Mm -hmm. And then documentaries 
came so easy to me. And funny as now life is coming full circle. I'm, I'm a check writer who learned slowly. I know you love me. And so I now have come around to the point like, oh, wait a second. These do all work the same. They all are synergistic. Let me work through how to do. But the documentary is the first place I learned that came so easy to me because I knew what I was good at, knew what there's no way I was ever going to pull off. So why don't I just go get the best people in all these areas, recognize their talent and let them come on the journey with me. And now we've done that 65 Five times. We got three more Emmy nominations last week. So we know we're in the hunt and that's what keeps it fun. Nick, right where you are right now, and a lot of us have had a chance to do some recalibrating, you know, Zoom has been a big part of this for everybody. And all my entrepreneurs, Zoom is, it's an inflection point in their careers because I said, there's no reason why any entrepreneur now should not, after you have Zoom, that if you're a local business, you can think national. At the very minimum, you can think national now, and you can think global, depending on the industry that you're in. But you and I have had some conversations just in the last six months of you know using all your documentary experience, but sort of zeroing in on themes now, like almost like a series of particular type of documentaries. Can you talk a little bit? Because now we're talking about the rest of 2020, 2021, and where you go beyond that. Yeah, it's funny. We were working on a documentary during all this. We just finished. We're about to launch called Dreamer. And it's all about people who were told to get their head out of the clouds and they didn't. And they changed the world. Of course, Peter Diamandis is featured in there and a bunch of our other mutual friends, Dean Kamen. And so, you know, for me, I think what I'm looking at, again, I'm trying to figure out, I know what messages I think could have the most impact. How do I put the story together in a way that gets those who normally wouldn't pay attention to pay attention? Like Dreamer, we really created for entrepreneurs in the making in school who are frustrated as hell by school. Like one of the sections of the documentary, Dean Kamen gives the line and says, no more damn science fairs. And he's like, why do we make these kids create these stupid little apparatuses to do? That's not what they're interested in. If you have a kid who truly is interested in science, let them do something that would be valuable in their life and their experiences and let them dig and let them have Socratic opportunities. And so I'm looking for bigger stories like that while also trying to make sure that I'm spending my time. It takes me the same amount of effort and success or failure really relies on the audience that's already prepared for my message. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to the point where I've realized that my job, you know, we talk about, I'm a simplifier and you, you called it out. I take a bunch of stuff, put it down into a song or a movie and I need a multiplier who loves sharing messages with the world. And so I've really realized that let me spend my time making messages that have multipliers attached to them because it takes me the same amount of effort and it really either falls on deaf ears or millions of people will see it if a multiplier is involved. Like the movie I just did on Folds of Honor, it's a nonprofit that's given $140 million in scholarships to the families of fallen soldiers. Our launch is coming up the 3rd of July on a major network, 10 celebrity performances. I mean, the the guy who runs it, he is a multiplier. He had me and my family, along with Larry the Cable Guy, a bunch of actors in Owasso, Oklahoma, for a golf tournament on Memorial Day. Like, this guy can get anyone to do anything he wants. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for multipliers who have a big audience, and I can tell the story. So I'm looking at that. I'm also looking right now is, I said it before, now is the time of all times to get a head start in being 
the leader your marketplace looks to for all things. You do not have to know everything. You just have to be the conduit. You can do interviews. You can bring on people who are valuable to your audience. Right now, they are scared. I had this conversation with someone earlier, Dan. I quoted you. People cannot see their future. You must help them see their future. Hmm. They need someone to do that. You need to be that person. And the longer you wait to do it, the more you're going to miss the opportunity. And really, I promise you what you're going to see. If you don't take the opportunity right now to start a podcast, to start a live stream, to start blogging, to start your next book, you're going to look back in two years, three years, five years, and you're going to be two, three, or five years behind. So now is the time to lead in your marketplace. You are the leader they've been looking for. For me, I was super self-conscious about it. I got a list, but I'm not I crazy, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I realized that, you know what? I could provide value to my marketplace with my network of people to maybe give people some more normalcy in their lives. So let me just try it. And we all know that when your message is bigger than your ego, you get out of the way and you start. And I would just highly encourage everyone to start. It's amazing what opportunities open themselves when you start thinking in the way when you get the courage and you start on the road to the capability, mm-hmm. the strategic byproducts to use your term too, from my live stream, who I didn't even know anyone was watching, have already been incredible. I got a call after three weeks of doing it, randomly doing it, from the head of PR for Penguin Random House and said, hey, would you be interested in having some of our authors on your podcast? And I said, mm-hmm. well, who do you have? And they gave me a list of like a thousand authors and they've got everybody. And now one begets the next, begets the next, begets the next. And so Chris Voss and I are now talking about doing a documentary because Mm -hmm. I got the relationship. I hosted my podcast and it allowed me to start creating relationships, doing what I do, which is having impactful conversations and I can guide it to a produced outcome. So that's how I'm thinking right now. Yep. Free zone frontier. That's the third level of strategic coach. You came in at level number two, which was the 10 times ambition workshop, what you thought it was going to be and how it's developed for you. Yeah, it's a crazy answer. I think my best answer to that, my most honest answer is it is completely different than what I expected because I really thought it's mostly the same people in the same room. How different can it be? I thought that. Now, well, most of the conversations that I have that are truly looking into my future are with people who are in the free zone program because all the BS is out of the way. We already know we're trying to accomplish. None of us are worried about taking advantage of the other. No one's seeking cash from one another. We're just trying to figure out what's the bigger game we can play together. I had an awesome conversation with Howard Getson the other day, who's also in the free zone program. And there's a level of collaboration and trust you start with. And also language, I think that would take years to get to these very simplified, nuances that would take years to build trust, language, vocabulary to even get to. And we just start with those. And so what we're able to accomplish in 30 minutes, an hour, or in a collaboration for a year or two years or three years, completely astronomically different. I really don't want to collaborate really with anyone who's not speaking that language and in that program, it's just a lot harder. You have to do so much preamble to make sure people are playing as openly as you're playing. It's been amazing. And the relationships are so much deeper. And I would say most everywhere I go now, I don't know if it's cause or effect, but I don't really go anywhere. I'm not running into a bunch of other free zoners and we're hanging out because we collaborate on whatever's happening. There's like two meetings happening all the time. There's whatever other meeting we happen to be at. And then there's the meeting we're having on top of that at a whole different level to integrate what we're learning to collaborating together. Can you just talk a little bit about the collaboration with Charlie Epstein? 
Yeah. 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 So Charlie is a uniquely gifted guy. So someone said this the other day. They said, you find a way to get the most interesting level and concise interviews out of quirky people. I was like, huh, never thought of it as quirky people. It was actually Howard Getson said that. I stopped and I said, well, you know, Howard, quirkiness to me, if you're working in the entertainment world, that's what a character is. They have quirks, they have nuance, they are a character. So actually, that's all I'm seeking out. Regular people are boring. So I want characters. So call it quirky, I'll call it a character. Charlie has the character and the quirk of a one-man show actor that he had done years ago. He's a trained actor. He's a professional comedian. And he's a financial advisor to very wealthy people and very smart and very counterintuitive to how he does what he does. And he wants to share that message with the world. So he's collaborating also with Mike Koenigs and others you know, in the program, again, to create entertainment out of a message that he calls his ministry of finance to get people who would never pay attention to pay attention. So you brought him to me and said, hey, Nick, you need to make this documentary. And so I'm creating the documentary and creating the final package finished filmed version of the one man show so it can scale. But an amazing collaboration with just for the beginning, me and Mike Koenigs and Charlie all speak in the same language and understanding that we all have cash confidence in our own businesses. And again, that's a mindset more than it is cash. We know we already have a thing that we do. Well, let's all do what we do best and let's create something new. And it's been a wild ride. I mean, it's been crazy thus far because we had to cancel and move a couple of different shoots, but we have multiple shoots scheduled for July and August. And what we've even been able to capture, by the way, filming on Zoom is all the stuff that I wish people had, and they never have it. Like we go to create a story on somebody and like we're doing a story on Anthony Scaramucci right now. He's a fascinatingly interesting guy. I love the guy. He's a character for sure. And, you know, we're going back to, we're literally texting his mom, trying to see if she's got pictures or video, anything from when he was a kid. Well, when we're creating this thing, we're doing it on Zoom and we're filming it. Like we'll have hundreds of hours to go literally pick the moment when something came together. It's a beautiful thing. I also, by the way, am working on a collaboration with, Ross Thornley and Ross in adaptability. We're filming a mini documentary on adaptability during the quarantine and Ross being more adaptable than me is like, Hey, we should probably use this moment in the documentary. So we then started zooming in to do interviews and Rami, who, you know, my director of photography, Rami zooms in and tells the person he set up my zoom room, by the way, with me and just told me what to put where we have him come on first and we record it, him showing people, Hey, can you turn your computer all the way around or would it be awkward to do this? And we get him to look, it's shocking how it goes from looking super lame to really good just with moving and moving a couple of things in the background. Then I do the interview and we're using that as part of the film and we're going to break in and say, Hey, look, this film happened during the quarantine and we had to be adaptable. Here's what we did. And here's the outcome. Yeah. So some super neat collaborations. One last question. And I haven't asked any of the previous success stories this, but Probably the most jolting concept that we have in the free zone frontier is the $15 trillion free zone. When I'm 100 years old, this is my goal, and I've got quite a number of years to go before I'm 100, but I want that the economic activity that takes place because of free zone people collaborating with free zone people and other people, that it's equal to $15 trillion. So... What's that do for your thinking? You know, just on basis what you said, why would I work with anybody else except people in free zone? I'd like to connect that thought that you made to the fact that, you know, 
five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, probably have 1,000, 10,000 people who are free zoners and they're all collaborating with each other. Is $15 trillion out of the question? I actually think it might be a little low. I'm a little biased to this too, because I know the viewership numbers on my documentary and even your documentary that so far, you know, anyone can go watch it on Amazon and share it has had thousands and thousands of views. I mean, what are those people who you never even meet are going to accomplish? And that's through a, a free zone collaboration, if you will. So I think the key to it really for me is when you remove the elephant in the room, you can get to the business, right? And so nobody in the room in free zone, and I'm not saying 10X, you know, anyone is there to try to come take from you, but by the time you've been vetted and allowed into the group of free zone and you've achieved a level of success where you can afford to be in that room, no one is in that room for money. People are in that room for collaboration. Now, the collaborations will result in creating value for the world and you'll just get repaid. I mean, no one is there to build a charity. Don't get me wrong. But we all know how to make money. So now it's really with the focus you give us and the thinking tools you give us, like, how can we make the most impact and create the most value in the world, utilizing each other's unique ability, skill sets, and unique ability teamwork to create collaborations that the world has never seen before. And clearly when you do that, we see what the result of, well, what Peter Diamandis did with the X Prize in creating the private space race. And now very evidently with the outcome being Elon Musk putting, you know, astronauts up in the space station. And so that is the kind of collaborations that are happening with the way people are thinking. It's because of, I think, the ground rules of respect you've set. I think it's the training people have had to go through even in order to be invited in the room. And I think it's the policing that you do like anyone has doing a room. If you see someone who's predatory, they get out. And so they typically don't ever make it there. So it's a safe space to have dreams where most other people would say, you probably need to dream a little smaller or really, you're really thinking about that. It's a safe space where everyone else is like, okay, well, how would we get to that? Instead of you should probably go back to doing your day job. Perfect ending. Anyway, that was great. Anything you think through? And because I always, by talking, I get new ideas. Anything that popped up for you during our talk? I've been doing so many sessions with you recently. Like I have so much clarity right now on who I want to be a hero to and everything else. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm driving, driving, driving. You know, one of the things I've done is I created the success network. I'm having a call actually later today. I had one with Howard. I had one. Paul Abel asked for one. I had one yesterday. I have a call with Kevin Brady. You know, really what I've created is a network where they can just show up and talk and do what they do. And we do all the post-production. And so that's super exciting and how I can help them do more of what they're doing. So that, that's working really well. And Ross was one of my first clients on it. And Ross is very particular and he gives great feedback. And Ross is like over the moon happy. So I know we're doing something right, which makes me feel good. I love having the conversations. You don't have to send it back to me. I'm not going to watch it. I'll share it, but I don't need to approve it. Just edit what you like and it can go out. No problem. I think I told you and Babs through a text or email. You have done exactly what you encourage us to do. And I didn't exactly know what that looked like when we started in the scary times, but you encourage us to be become the most valuable person in our clients' network. And you guys have certainly done that for me. So I can't thank you now. Thank you. All right, man. All right. Talk soon. Go shoot something. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs>